we've been talking for what 15 20 minutes it's two hours oh we're just getting out of the opening statements though so don't worry the incomparable number 356 june 2017 Welcome once again, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. This is part two of my conversation with Merlin Mann, John Gruber, Moises Chuyan, and John Syracusa about The Godfather, part two. Let's go back to the other time frame because we should talk about the scene during the the parade uh, thing where there's the is it is it a saint or Jesus and like there's a cross and then there's money all over it. That's the thing that they do though the Italian American. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but like having a, having yeah. a Jesus with a floating crown covered with money. Yeah, I mean it, it may have been the first movie or the first popular movie where people have seen that this thing. There there are cultural things that are like wait what the that is not in any way tied to anything that I understand from my background. But you know it's like uh, the the first time people see a luchador match and at the end of the match a bunch of you know mexican americans are throwing money in the ring and people are like what the hell's going on that's it's 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 a sign of respect it's a custom it's a thing you know it's just a thing i grew up roman catholic uh and it's you, you just you don't know that other denominations aren't as centered on making money <laughs> until you get older and you gain some perspective. But even as a kid and not in a, a anyway, an Italian parish and, you know, I'm sure there, it was probably more Irish than, than Italian backgrounds where I grew up. Um, but they, it was always about the money. <laughs> I mean, you know, just think about the Vatican. Like, you yep. just, I grew up just gold, like the Vatican was art. like the. Yeah, yeah, talking about palaces covered in gold. <laughs> right. It's, it's one of the most luxurious palaces ever built in the history of humankind. Uh, for a church, <laughs> it's, it's comical in a way, but that sort of bald faced dollar bills tacked to a religious icon <laughs> it was it's pretty it, on the it, nose. Yeah. If you grew up. Catholic. It's not weird at all. It isn't. It's, you know, Coppola is obviously aware of it and it's obviously used for symbolic purposes, but it's not an exaggeration in any way, shape or form. My church, when I grew up, they used to have a summer bazaar. It was like three night thing and there's little, little games of chance for the kids and stuff like that. But they had like actual blackjack tables in the gym for the adults. You could go in and play cash blackjack. And I thought, I mean, and you know, you guys know me. I was, I I wanted to play and was desperately hurt that I was not allowed to play. Poker night at the rectory with Virgin Mary dealer. They say the house always wins, but if God is the house, how bad can Uh, it be? The way that they got away with it somehow, I don't know if if it was, I I don't know, but somehow the story I had heard was that the reason that they were allowed to do it was a, they're a charity and B, um, they're in a charity blackjack game run by a church. It was if you tied the dealer, you lost the hand, so you had no chance to win. I mean, <laughs> oh God! Right. That's the church for you. Right. It was, it was really frustrating growing up in the late in the late seventies. At a time, this is before the moral majority stuff really caught on, but um, there was a lot of sensation about video games and how basically, at least in my church and in a lot of Protestant communities, uh, they were basically seen as gambling. 
they were like, if you spent money on this thing and there was no like clear reward <laughs> and you didn't have to work hard, like that is gambling. That definitely sounds way more Protestant than the Catholics we were just talking about. Video games is gambling. Well, that's what I was going to say. It always, it seems so like frustrating to me that like the Catholics were allowed to bingo the crap out of everything and like we weren't allowed <laughs> to play Defender. Speaking of bingo, I, I've not to go too far <laughs> off the track, but when I was in college, there was a thing at my parents' parish where <laughs> the, one of the priests in the parish literally got arrested because the cops figured out that he was running <laughs> crooked bingo. The big, the bingo game was crooked. Cro- crooked bingo? <laughs> the fix was in on the bingo. Right. <laughs> crooked bingo. It was like eight men out, but with bingo. <laughs> right. right. He, he he was running a thing where he, he was like icing some of the balls. Or <laughs> He's got a blue-haired lady on the inside. Shoeless, shoeless Joe O'Malley. Well, and that, tie, that ties back to Hyman Roth. I love, I love right. baseball. I loved it ever since Arnold Rothstein fixed the 1918 World Series, he says. Mm-hmm. Of course mm-hmm. he does. Of course he loves baseball. With such genuine relish yeah. like he's yeah actually, yeah it's like yeah. the best thing ever and, and, and again back to like, Hyman Roth I know we're just bringing up tangential here but like but I really do love the fact that he you know he goes back to, to Marlon Brando's godfather right that they were they were running molasses when they were you know yeah. they, they go back uh way back your dad's he's trucks obviously got a tremendous amount of money but he is and he has been successful but a his appetite for continued success and money continues despite the fact that surely he has more than enough money to last in the rest of his life and b he lives like a suburban New Yorker who moved down to to Florida to retire. Like he's in this <laughs> tiny little house with his, you know, way too young wife making him tuna sandwiches. He's not in a giant castle. He doesn't need any of this money. It's all about like the game. It's all about success and winning and and he's happy to just go back and and watch the ball game in his surely sweltering uh florida uh you know ranch house bungalow whatever as his wife brings him sandwiches and i just i just love i love him i love that character i love the brokenness yep. of his the way he chooses to live his life and what he chooses to do with his time because it is so so bonkers <laughs> so we should talk about the scene so what happens in the in during the this this festa that happens is is that uh is that uh, Vito is going to take out Fenucci. So he watches Fenucci. He knows where he is. You can't miss him out in the street. And he then he paces him on the rooftops and follows him, basically follows him home and like goes around the back of some of the chimneys and jumps down to a lower building and he's he's doing like parkour and little italy doing what he needs to do to get around to follow him unscrews the light bulb he's got the towel around the towel around the gun as a silencer well before we get to that though i like the the just i first saw this scene when i was doesn't matter why but i was in a i was visiting with this friend of mine who taught a film class and he showed that entire sequence and i'd seen godfather one i don't think i'd seen godfather two at that point and i was just i was completely struck by that scene and just the there's so much to that there's there's the 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 panic shot of De Niro going across the roofs. There's the panning shots down on the ground. And then there's the shots down where Finucci is like this big white like a big white bird he wants to wet his beak uh-huh. and he's so clearly visible amidst uh, like all of this crowd and i i just i i could just watch this scene over and, and over. drinking it up all the things he does we're we're carefully studying him as he's doing it and he puts the money oh, i'm gonna start doing that and... arm thing that that arm move is good i want to start doing that <sighs> oh, yeah. hey what's that called john syracuse what do you call that no i but you know the movie you should start doing is the the thing where someone puts some money in front of you and you immediately throw your giant hat down on top of it and says <laughs> i think there's a hundred dollars under the hat what a move like he's such a he's such a character i want to call Every move, I love the way he stirs his espresso. He, he wears his jacket over his jacket. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 
Jackets upon jackets upon jackets. It's jackets all the way down. And and he's in the white. Everyone else in, in this New York street scene is like covered with filth. Yes. Like right. Everybody. Everybody's wearing brown. <laughs> Dickens characters. Everybody's covered with filth. He's wearing a white suit, white three-piece suit head to toe and a white hat. Every day. Every right. single Every day. day. And and it, it, it's, it speaks to his level of power that he can just have the biggest all white linen uh target painted on him and just walk through the streets with not a care not an assumption that anybody is going to try to do anything to him this is too violent for me they just kiss his hands he puts out his hands and they kiss him but then then uh mm. you know Vito takes ac- finally does take action about this guy like he's got a whole he's got his whole i love plan. it all i love it all i want to drink in every bit that the way that he unscrews the light bulb the way he slips into that every single bit of it just oh so perfect yeah it's a, it's a duck hunt out in the woods but you know in in the middle of the little Italy. and he waits too right like he he hears well, him coming I mean, it's up his the first steps time. you know like this is he first waits time. and then he's 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 stealing himself like he waits part of it because you have to wait right so he's not impatient but when when we as the audience realize now is the time Vito. he still waits because then he's got to be like am i really doing this is this happening and eventually he does go through it and then and then the cooler head of Vito prevails where he's like i've gone through with it but you know what one in the mouth to make sure like i already got <laughs> oh, him in the chest God. i already got yeah. him in the face well, do not that. run away bend down and just make sure like look you're here to do a thing do the thing oh i love the cut i love the edit where they it's like a cut right to where he gets him in that in the cheek and so they Mm -hmm. don't have to you know you don't have to have a squib explode because the cut is the squib the actual edit of the film is the impact of the bullet hitting his face so it just starts with the hole in his face it is yeah it's the classic trick they oh. would do with arrows going into people. Make the sound effect cut to the guy with the arrow already in his oh. chest. I also like how she like tears his clothes open to see like what is going on <laughs> you here. Hear the buttons this... popping. <laughs> yeah, good. Some good foley work there. If I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die half naked. And th- and then he takes then he takes the gun apart and puts the pieces down the different chimneys. <sighs> yeah, yeah, right. Smart. Perfect. Well, I actually had a thought about that. I'm not sure how smart it was. Insofar, search yeah. the stoves of the building in which the guy was killed. It might have seemed smart. They're all in the same building. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, there. Are, look, the, the point is, like, how are you going to find these things? If those things are only go down into the into the furnace, did you get a bit of a firearm in your <laughs> chimney tool? Yeah, it, it's a piece of one down. In, assuming those aren't just vent pipes and they actually go down to furnaces as well. Like, but but I'm what I was thinking watching it is that Vito is being very thorough. He's he's you know, look, if, if yeah. you're going to kill this guy, if you come at the king, best not miss, right? Uh, and he <laughs> doesn't, uh, and he's put, getting rid of the evidence, and I'm like. No cop is going to investigate this. Nobody cares what goes on in Little Italy. They don't care that you killed this guy. This will never be investigated in any way whatsoever. But but he's you know he's dotting his eyes and crossing his t's. And that, that that attention to detail is what is is you know what what helps him become so uh, you know effectively bulletproof for the longest time is he he crosses all the eyes he crosses all the t's dots all the eyes and uh, and and is careful he he comes back behind himself. I mean, even the gunshot happening at the time when the fireworks are going out, which he knows are going to happen at the end of the festival. It's a good plan. Yeah. yeah. There's even the case that uh, he, he it more likely than the cops investigating would be Felucci's men. Yeah. Investigating. Right. And there's abs- if you think about it, there's absolutely positively only two people on the planet who who know that Vito did this. And that's Clemenza and uh, yeah. with, with Tessio, right? Tessio. Uh, yeah. yeah. Young Tessio, by the way, looks like Tony Danza. And he knows he's he knows those guys. He knows he can trust those guys. You know, he knows that they're you know, they're he doesn't have to worry about them. But there's no reason like like Felucci's guys are like, who the hell would do this? They don't even know who Vito Corleone is. (laughs) That's so great. The next part is Washington, D.C., 
Senate Committee on Organized Crime. This is the uh, the interview with Michael and uh, from, from the various senators, and they ask him all the questions about if you're a member of uh, an organized crime family. Favorite favorite cameos in the Godfather saga among among two of my very favorite are Harry Dean Stanton as FBI mm. guy number one. Well, he's so young. If he's so young in this. He's got to be like only 70 or so in this. <laughs> right. I, had no, I had no idea that was him. No idea. You know, he, he's the guy who, 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 uh, who eventually uh, finds, uh, finds Frankie in the bathtub. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, I want to call him vice chair of the committee because he's like senator number two or something is Roger Corman, who has one line in the movie and is mostly just sitting there listening the entire time during all the proceedings. But I love that all of these guys who came up doing movies with Roger ended up casting him almost exclusively as a senator you know jonathan demi made him a senator in the manchurian candidate remake like he's he's always like a senator on a committee investigating something not saying much and then he says like one line and then he's done there's a lot of smoking in this scene yeah uh, john i don't know if you noticed that i did uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of smoking in the movie in general like I, I i always think back to the first movie where uh where uh you know michael is, is saying about Kay, she's hysterical and he he's palming the cigarette in this weird way where he yeah. reaches around and grips the, there's, there's a lot of good uh a lot of good uh, cigarette work. I also think this the Senate scene <laughs> is the the prototypical. Uh, I mean, it's, it's probably just crib from TV news, but like the lenses and the angle they get on Michael as he sits at that table with mm-hmm. like the press sound effects around him, like it feels like uh, by choosing the staging and the camera angles, it feels like he is in in the Senate talking and they make it feel so so like intimate and crowded when in reality it's like you're on this table way over here and these 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 people all up over there and people whispering in people's ears and the senators with their agenda and him with tom next to him and more great character actors you've got the the guy who plays uh what's his name's attorney the guy with the glasses like he's he's exactly perfect i love the guy who runs the committee that guy is such a great character actor yeah the little mole guy yeah yeah I'll allow it. <laughs> I will produce someone who has spoken directly to my... He's such a little... Like, he's got a plan he's executing slowly and carefully, but he's he's getting outplayed. Oh, and the brother. The brother. Oh. We skipped over the K-stop. The K-stop happened also in the, in the oh, same right. thing. Like, this, this is one thing I, I noted in my 900th viewing of this movie is that the the dissolution of his marriage, I mean, it works from, from the perspective that... Michael doesn't realize it's happening, and therefore we as the viewers are also supposed to perhaps not realize it's happening because we're so caught up in Michael's game. And then it comes, you know, then he gets blindsided by it, you know, with the later later scene where that comes to a head. But there's not much in the movie to really show uh, that that things are falling apart in the marriage. Because the few lines that Kay has early on is like, oh, you know, you told me the family would be legitimate in five years and it's been seven years. But even there, she doesn't sound too pissed about it. And it's really just, we don't see her again for a long period of time. And so it's like, she says that one thing, and then he doesn't talk to her for a while, and then she aborts his baby and is out of there. Like, it is, it is, there's, there's not a lot of text for that. And the only way I can really excuse it is to say, because Michael doesn't realize it's happening. He's caught up with all this stuff going on, too. And he's, he's literally not paying enough attention to his family. When he comes home and sees his, his proxy gifted electric car in the snow, he feels bad about it, but he doesn't realize how, and he comes in and Kay doesn't get up from her sewing machine to welcome him. Like he knows things are bad, but he still feels right up to the very end. He feels like I can fix this. I can change, change. I'll handle it. This is, you know, this, this is just, it's an impossibility for this to, to go badly. So in that way it works, but I do, I do feel like, Kay should have had a few more scenes to to flesh out her side of the arc so we're aware that it's simmering instead of us getting so caught up in these other stories and then just having, oh, by the way, Kay's here and their marriage is a mess. 
It's a little bit less. It's it's less of a role than than uh, absolutely than she had in the first one. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's a bummer because she she was such an important presence in the first film. In some ways, she was us. You know, she was the one who was the proxy. She was the companion, and. Uh, yeah, I was bummed that she had less to do in this one, although she was great in what she had. She gets the door closed on her again? Again. Yeah. There is the, there's also the bit where he's obviously suspicious, or he starts to sense that he, that, that he might be losing her, and he asks his mom, you know, can I... Yeah, can I lose you know, your family? Can I lose your family? And his mom gives him some pretty bad advice based on her, her dated worldview of... Well, no, she's right, but he misinterprets it. You can't right. ever lose your family. Your family is like... But he makes that... He interprets it as saying, oh... Then pretty much anything I do, everything's okay because they'll always be my family because it's a constant. And she's trying to say, you can't ever lose your family because like you shouldn't, you should never let go of that. It should, it should always be your number one priority. And he, you know, takes the wrong thing from it. Closing the door on her was cold. That was bad. pretty cold. Yeah. You got to wonder what he's going to do because Connie's like, he's coming. You got to go. Like, oh my mm-hmm. God, we can't even let yeah, let you be yeah. near him, right? And and this is what it is, is he's not going to be violent to, to her. He's going to be what Michael, other than that one time, I suppose, Michael, what Michael is, is to uh, most people, which is cold. And, and uh, but, but domineering and demands, demands that things go his way, demands respect when he wants to be there and you're not to be there, you have to get out. Like, because he, he commands this entire, you know... The, the power that he has over everybody, in, intentional or otherwise, he essentially has leverage on everybody in his family. He has leverage on Fredo because he supports him. He has leverage on Connie because he, he, he knows like she's lashing out at him by blowing up her own life because he knows that, you know, she says like this is a way that she could hurt him. But he, she comes running back. So now he's got leverage over her. Everybody in his life owes him something or relies on him for something. And to be caught in that system, Kay is the only kind of independent actor and is just overwhelmed by the mass of people who maybe her friends but because they're caught up in michael's world carry out his will uh to the point where you know connie connie seems like genuinely fearful like you gotta you gotta leave gives her a hug you gotta get out like as if he's gonna come like the big bad wolf and kill everybody but he's not but he, he's just gonna things have to go his way uh even if it's just fearful that he's gonna do the al pacino screaming thing get out right you know uh, even if it's just fearful of that i think that's probably the worst case scenario that she was imagining but even so what he did and the way he acted without saying a word and shutting the door mm-hmm. on her in front of his kids yeah, yeah. He's, he's messing up his kids something awful yeah. in this movie if connie had taken the kids away and it was just a scene between mike and Kay, and he did that it's still cold and i think he wants them to see that yes, and he right. wants her to see them seeing that that's part of the power play that's why the son doesn't kiss her right. and yeah. at that moment at, at that's if if that's not I, that might be the moment where you know really me watching the movie it it that's where i go from i'm on the fence about what i think about michael corleone to I don't like this guy. This guy's a monster. You're okay yeah. with the prostitute killing that, but it's, it's <laughs> the closing door. Well, business, no business. No family. Business. Well, she's not in the game, though. I feel like I mean, that's the whole thing. Who's who's in the yeah. game and who's not? I, yeah, it was just a prostitute. This is Diane Keaton we're talking about. <laughs> I hate to say it, but yes, I was still. <laughs> I mean, the prostitute was the prostitute. I'm sure just, that I'm sure that she had friends. But I right. mean, and you don't on. know what she done. Maybe she deserved it. You know, yeah, yeah, there's a whole right. other movie about that prostitute that we're not going to see. Right. Let's move back to the first time frame just to talk about the. Uh, this is the thing we talked about it a bit, which is now we see Vito, and now he is the respected figure in the community. He is the now, now he takes the orange. He takes the orange. <laughs> he. This is where we get the the lady who's been evicted because she had the dog and she wouldn't get rid of the dog, yeah. and the guy is like, "What do you want me to do about it?" And then and then finally, uh, like, comes back to the to the Olive 
olive oil business storefront and is like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know it was you. And and starts like discounting her rent and giving but back in, rent. In, in, in his first run at it, in his first run at it, when he's not recognized, like the guy doesn't know who you are. He's like, what are you bothering me? Oh, Lady Columbo, like whatever. I like, why are, you, why are you even talking to me about this? Tries to give him money. She's like, I already rented it. Like, and, you know, he, he tries to get him to do it and then put like, He's, he's getting as far as he can by throwing money at this guy, yeah. which is like, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're going to throw money at him, that's a good way to get at it. And then and then he, they seem to come to agree when he goes, but the dog stays, the dog, yep, right? The power move. Like, he can't. <laughs> that's the power move. But, but gra- the one last grab, and the guy's like, no, the dog doesn't stay. Get out of here, right? And then he comes, he goes, you know, running back. <laughs> that's such a great move, right? It's just like, you think we got a deal, but we don't yet. I'm going to, I need a little bit more from you now. It's amazing. Yeah. The, the the bit where, you know, uh, v- Vito is, you know, going around and he's full taken on the you know the the full powers of of the of the godfather phoenix or whatever um there there's so many pop culture lifts and references and satires and that kind of thing but but this sequence is the source of one of my favorites which is on the simpsons where uh you know homer is decked out like Vito and people are giving him donuts and stuff um and and that that for me you know that 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 bit of the Vito narrative Especially coming at the, I guess you would say the, the cross cutting point that it does is again, this, this really great look at how different from his father, um, uh, Michael is, uh, where Vito has risen to this level of power and he, he, he treats women, uh, well with a, with a, with a certain amount of reverence. And we have that juxtaposed with Michael treating his wife like the piece of window dressing that he's effectively treated her as since the first movie where, you know, he runs off to Sicily to hide and goes, Oh yeah, that girl I was dating, who cares? Uh, this, this Sicilian woman, this will be a good match for me as I rise into my role and so on, you know, he, and it, you know, it would have been a better match than because he wanted, he wanted a woman who was willing to be subservient and Kay exactly. was independent but when he came back I, f- I felt like he was in, in the first movie it's like now I need the success he like went shopping for a wife accessory like I've yeah. come back I have to fulfill this role as an American thing she'll do is my wife accessory yep. and she she's not having that he's got a shopping list okay I gotta get the garlic to fry I gotta get the meat mm-hmm. to brown I gotta get the sauce I got the tomatoes can we just talk about these scenes I've I know I've I talked about this and I think Merlin and I did uh, when we talked about the the godfather on my show a couple months ago or a year ago or whatever but the the art direction of the new york of what was around 1920 or so yeah i i don't understand how they did it it's the great (laughs) it the 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 set dressing there's i i I paused it a couple times looking at it and like the shots where you're looking down these streets and the horizon you know it just disappears into the horizon and i guess that you know it's matte paintings and no not a single matte painting in the movie they shot a lot of this stuff on location. Movie-locations.com, which would never be wrong, yes. says that it was a redress of 6th Street in the East Village between Avenue A and B in period dressing. Yeah. And it's actually just a dressed up part of New York City. It is amazing, John. Um, I, I, I found myself stopping at several points and being like, oh my God, this looks so great. How is this not real? How in the <laughs> world did they make 1974? Because it was, 19, it was 1972, 19, 1973 New York. Yeah, it 
it did it did help that New York was pretty gross then. <laughs> it's just amazing. I like the mixture of it too, where it's the this is the period where you could legitimately have like there's some cars going through, but there's also some mm-hmm. animals going through. It's yeah. that mm-hmm. that time where it's like it's a little late for the animal traffic, but not too late. There's still some in poorer parts of town, and the and the the street is kind of paved, kind of, but not very well. And they're all the little storefronts and everything, and all of these scenes look great. They're, they they oh, yeah a lot a lot of coats of paints on everything i enjoy like yeah. most of the doors and doorways in these buildings even though they're even though they're not that old at that point they're painted over and the paint is all chipped off and you know just like good especially the scene where where the senior roberto whoever is struggling to get out like that comedy that comedy scene where he's he's oh, yeah. paid his respects and he realizes <laughs> he can't he can't work his door lock both on the, the way in and the way out <laughs> <laughs> that's so great that's a surprising moment of a gag in the movie where it's like he really wants to be out of there and he just he can't he can't get in he can't get out he, and Vito Vito just motions to his, his friend to just right. you know eventually let, you can let him <laughs> off the guy, hook let him let out this guy out Fredo gets put out of the family gets gets to you know I know it was you Fredo you're nothing to me now getting cold Mike won't even be in the same room with 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 him and his dead mother at the same time I mean, that's this big scene that like you know it is the the heart of this movie i feel like that scene i love i love this tahoe set i love this house i yep. love everything about oh, yeah. how they shoot it and they're there with the the snow on the windowsill and the lake behind them and the and there was that whole uh every frame of painting thing about chairs that talked a lot about the chair fredo was in and how it's like broken spine of the chair yeah we're afraid it was like reclined back yeah just flopped on the thing exactly and in a chair it looks like it has collapsed and he is it doesn't it's it's a, a the recliner and he's barely staying in. <laughs> it looks like it fell down and he doesn't know how to put it back <laughs> well, up it, it, well it looks like he collapsed and the chair said all right i'm going to accommodate this right and he and he is like lurching out of it and twitching from side to side it's such, such an amazing performance and like and vocally like i, I mean i've seen seen the movie a million times seen the scene a thousand times and still like i get like pulled up in my seat and stiffen up like because the whole scene is like you know he's he's depressed he's telling mike about it and no it was going to be a hit blah, blah 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 and they start getting into it eventually and then you get like it's very low key, and Fredo's the first one to bring it up. And you get the "taking care of me" like that. Yeah. That line, the delivery of that line, is so amazing. And so, do you ever think about that? <laughs> yeah, and then he goes off on that whole the whole rant after. But I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Yeah, and like, and that oh. is that has got to be like the way he delivers that. I mean, that's got to be ad lib to the point of like, look, here's roughly what you're going to say, but the way he stumbles over, he's not even able to articulate his his inarticulate anger at being passed over and being the dimwitted person that he knows he well, is. He's cap- he's capturing this thing where like you know that he has simmered for a long time, but I, as somebody who misspeaks and thinks off the top of their head, I'm telling you, this is the feeling of a man who's realizing how he feels as he's describing how he feels. Mm-hmm. And he nails that yeah. perfectly for for me you know the the instinct is this feels like parts of this were ad-libbed you know because over the years actors have made a big point of oh yeah you know i i love that our writers are fine with us going a little bit off script and championing themselves for being improvisational geniuses at writing dialogue but john cazal's background as a stage actor and especially in the strasberg school is such that there are actors who do a terrible job uh, of they, they do what I call the Disney Channel school of acting when it comes to stuttering over words or stumbling over words where it's I, 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 I you know, and over pronouncing things and it doesn't come off as authentic. It doesn't come off as off the cuff. But Kazal's training was such that, you know, I, I this this for me is a masterclass of this is the dialogue 
deliver the dialogue as written. We can rewrite it to, you know, accommodate, you know, natural beats and that kind of a thing. But this was him being off book, you know, par excellence at the peak of a theater actor's uh, training and and energy. You know, it, it insults me as a retired theater actor when people are like, oh, this acting was too theatrical because it, it brands theater acting as something that is always over the top, always over exaggerated. And, and I get that instinct. But for me, the beauty of a a classically trained or brilliantly trained, you know, whatever adjective you, you want to attach to it, theater actor, is their ability to take something like this and make it feel improvised when it is scripted down to a T, uh, where, you know, you have a, a cinematographer on this movie where, you know, same cinematographer as the first movie, uh, uh, Gordon Willis, where... Yeah. You you step just a hair out of frame and the way that he has things so darkly or overlit, it just blows the whole shot. There There's an amazing amount of precision on display here for for people who are, especially in this case, playing something that is supposed to feel shaggy and rough around the edges and and imprecise. And th- th- this scene to me is among a lot of really great stuff in this movie, for me, the masterclass in acting, where just watch what these guys do and then really watch what these guys do. And you get a really good appreciation for how incredibly hard this is. I feel like you can't even repeat his his like his signature lines because you know what he's trying to say. Like what you are along for his inner monologue. What comes out of his mouth is like if you try to that you know from memory without looking at the script or even with looking at the script, which is usually inaccurate, you know, you know, like what what like you know, I can handle things. I, I'm smart, not not like people say, not like dumb smart. Like he's he's <laughs> trying to get that thought out and it interleaves three sentences with each other, all abbreviated. And if you write down literally what he says, like if you were to turn on the subtitles or like literally transcribe it, it is incoherent word salad. But because of the way he puts it out, you see the two sentences he was trying to say and how <laughs> they have mishmashed as he came out of his mouth. And he's he's flailing in that chair that's too soft and his hands are flying all over the place. And it's like, <laughs> it's just, it is so pathetic. And Michael's sitting there stone-faced and, you know, waiting to deliver his big thing. And as Michael leaves the room, like another one of his killer uh, lines, like, I don't want anything to happen to him as long as his mother is alive. <laughs> as long as our mother is alive. It's like, oh, oh. Oh. oh, yeah. The moment the moment you see Mama in the casket, you see that Mama has died. But you are also you should be noticing in the same moment. Oh, this means Fredo's going to die soon. Yeah, they do such a heartbreaking thing with the reconciliation, and as he's hugging them, he looks up to his guy, and the guy that that like the hitman is like is shamed. The hitman is. It, it casts his eyes downwards once he realizes what this means. The hitman is finally like. I can't even. I, I killed the prostitute for you. I this is this is beyond the pale. Like you're making up with him. You're giving him the big hug. Finally, we have reconciled. He's hugging you lovingly, and you look up at me, and it's you know, it's not like he gives him a nod or a wink. He just looks at him, and the guy goes, "Oh, uh, it's days like that that it's hard to go into the office as a hitman." Yeah, it's hard. You know, sometimes you wake up and you're like, you enjoy your job, but other days you're like. Yeah. I don't want to be a hitman today. You know what's a great scene? Great scene with Fredo is the scene where he and Mike, Mikey Jr., is that the kid's name? We're going yeah. on a boat in the morning. And his little story about at the time that he, and you know it's true. You know it's true that there was a time where he went out with his brothers and his pop and he was the only one who caught a fish. And, it, you know, as a kid is insecure, rightly insecure because he, he is the dim-witted brother but to have your day where you were the one who caught a fish and you know he believes that shit about the hail marys you know yeah he, mm-hmm. he, he he's not snowing the kid he's letting him in he's you know it's his little secret he's being the uncle 
Yeah, he's the he's the uncle who doesn't have any kids of his own. And here here's one of the things that he's always, you know, he's probably kept inside for what, like 35 years. When finally, <laughs> finally, maybe there's somebody in the family who could really admire him. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like yeah. He's yeah. the perfect uncle for the kids because he's at your level and you don't realize that until you get he, older. He takes you out fishing, right? They, like he's everybody's yeah. disappointed when when at the at, at the end of the film, they say, oh, you know. Uh, Michael wants him in the house now because uh, he's going to go to Reno, and and you know the kid's disappointed. He was going out on the on no. the lake to go fishing with his uncle, and now his uncle's going to no. get shot in the head. You know, it's disappointing. <laughs> I mean, that's what Fredo's been in this family for so long, and like even uh, you know going back to Goodfellas, even uh, what's her name, Karen knows not to go down yeah, and get the fur coats down the alley. But Fredo was like, oh, you got to be pulled away? Well, let's go out fishing anyway. We'll be fine. It's like, oh, Fredo. Sure, fishing with the bag man. <laughs> It'll be fine. What could go wrong? <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, it always, it always seems like a cruel and sort of like a weird trope that it's not enough to kill the person. It's like the most important... It's like they're kind of like a weird Greek mythology, like demon who can only kill you when you're at the peak of believing that they are your best friend. Mm-hmm. So you have to put the, you have to like, it's not enough. You could just go and shoot them in the head. It'll be fine. But it's like, actually come with us and we're going to take you to the airport and here's your tickets, Carlo. Right. And everything's fine. You have to go through that dance because like, you know, according to the laws of the, of the, the elder gods, this is, this is the only way to kill somebody. You have make them feel as close as possible and then kill them because it makes for dramatic movies and it makes you feel like you can't trust anybody because at the moment when you, when you feel that, you have reconciled that things are finally fine with Michael that, you know, that everybody's going to get paid, that it's all, all well and good that I'm going to get made today. That is the point when they kill you, which is so, so crushing. When Don Vito, Don Vito even lays that out in the first movie, uh, you know, he understands, you know, he sees into the matrix of the way that this mythology works. He's like, all right, so if they're going to kill you, it's going to happen when this happens. And the person who brings it to you, yeah, Yeah. you know, he gets it. He, he understands all that stuff. He has that sit back, be quiet and listen kind of perspective where he's able to soak it in. And he he it's really difficult for me to think of another character in any of these mob movies who who sees the progression of of the threads of fate the way that Don Vito did. And certainly Michael has Michael has not fully uh, fully um, uh, learned all of those lessons that he needs to know, uh, you know, which we if if there were a third movie, you know, in theory, um, you know, <laughs> we, we would probably see more of that kind of stuff play out. Uh, if there were a third movie, it would probably be uh, really unfairly compared to, you know, two movies that preceded. I think Michael is better at the game than his father in many, many ways. But his 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 flaws, his character flaws eventually are as undoing like Vito was more of a naturalistic one but like Michael Michael had the mind to you know to bring to bear in a situation that even Vito might have had trouble getting out of in the first movie like to bring it all together especially as as a as a new thing right and and in this movie I feel like Michael does a really good job of navigating some dangerous waters that he almost goes into some some like his his business success in this movie is only undercut by his total by the total wreck of his life that the rest of his you know his his insecurities and his anger and his his, his flaws uh, tear down around him. But he like this movie he does he does best time in Roth. He does vanquish his enemies, and it's it's all for nothing, which is the whole you know sale of this movie. Um, so he is actually very good at it, but he can't. He's not as self aware as Vito, or if not as self aware, he's, he's not as self assured as Vito, and that it, it it drives him to do things that are self destructive. We haven't once mentioned. To my recollection, uh, Robert Duvall, Tom, Tom. Hager. No, we haven't. How's how's that possible? Because he's just Michael. he's just that damn smooth, John. He's just that damn. Smooth. I also I love him. 
I love him. He's I so great. I think I think he's at his best as I, I think is he's so great. I want him as my lawyer mm-hmm. when he when he interrupts the senators to say, "Hey, he's to, already to answered a couple you. of your questions." <laughs> he wants to read a statement. Oh, oh, by the way, he also has stock in ITT. Like he's always got he's always got the the additional information that you may not be aware of. Yes, he has <laughs> stock in this company, but also in these other legitimate companies. What do you think of that? I also feel though that much like Diane Keaton, it's. It's not as good a role as in the first movie. He had way no, more to do in the no. first one. I mean, yeah, and and he, and he he's also part of the destruction of the family. When like Tom, we thought of as our guy, and so, you know, how do we feel about him in the first movie? It's like it's all great in this movie. Michael, in one of his fits of you know externalizing his internal issues, lashes out at him and says, "I thought you and your wife and your kid and your mistress were going to leave me and take mm. that job." And he's like, "Why do you hurt me, Michael?" Like, and so t- Tom is revealed as a person with his own flaws, and his his situation yeah. isn't as great as you think it is either and and like once michael is questioning tom's loyalty like then everything has fallen apart well in that first movie he's the he's the consigliere in this movie he's the he's the enabliere <laughs> he's just an enabler for michael and all of his regardless of what his instincts are he is there to facilitate just facilitate a to b i love that scene what i love about it when when uh, michael is mean to to, to tom <laughs> is tom hagan shows who we know he is which is absolutely loyal. Like the whole time he takes it. Why are you doing this to me, Mike? You know, he he says again and again, of course, I'm with you. I'm not taking that job. I'm not going to work for someone else. Every job I turned down. He's like, uh, you know, there's no question that I'm with you and I'm with the family. And and I think it shows just how lost Michael is that he's questioning the loyalty of the only loyal man. Yep. Just yeah. how lost and confused he must be. But, but, but I, th- I think it also reveals Tom as as his own flawed person. Sure. Like, he's not the perfect person we always thought he was, too. That, that everything is falling apart. That the thing that used to hold this all together, they, they could have their private lives of whatever things are going on. But it was always, you know, we're, we're in this together. And once that falls apart, now you're just a bunch of people with crappy home lives and... Also, the the bonds that used to tie the family together. Don't it's a decaying anymore. empire, right? I mean, this is the rise and fall yeah, of the he, Corleone. He, he, he pulls family. it out, you know, like the Roman Empire. Tom says it was once. Yeah, I want to ask about Pentangeli because this is an interesting scene that happens where they're like, "We don't know how to get to him. It's impossible. How are we going <laughs> to get to him? I don't know." And then, and then we don't see again. We don't see <laughs> what happens. And the next thing that happens is that Mike comes into the Senate hearing with this guy. His older Italian gentleman, who perfect, who perfectly nails what a fish out of water he is. <laughs> He's in the wrong outfit with his little tie. We have not given a shout out for costume and, and design and production design in this, but like so perfectly nailing this this guy who looks like he just landed on Venus. Yeah. <laughs> He just wants to go home. He just wants to go home. Hello, I am here. Eat your human foods. The the senators ask about it. Who is that guy? He keeps looking back at them. Can you interest that? And Tom, what kind of a tie is that? He doesn't speak a word of English. He's just visiting. They, and that's the thing. They never explain it. Like in the one time when it's asked about it, it's between the brothers. All right. Well, that's it then. I mean, you could surmise many theories about like I would, don't want to do something shameful in front of my brother who I respect or whatever. Like, but who knows what the backstory is there? But you don't need to. It's between the brothers. But we do know that his brother is uh, could have been come over and been and run one of the families. Could have, could have had his own. Family. So presumably he maybe is in this business back in Sicily, and that and therefore knows the code. And his brother would be completely shamed in doing this in front of him. But whatever the reason, I don't think so. I I, I didn't. I, I used to think that, but now I don't think so. I think this guy is probably. I think this guy's probably like a like a real citizen, and it's just a matter of seeing his brother 
breaking, I don't know, Omerta, like breaking the code is just, just whether or not you're involved in the system, you know that it is not okay to break yeah, the system. It's a, it's a family. It's like, you, you can't bear to do this in front of, in front of your family. Like it, it's hard enough. He knows he's shaming himself, but he's under the thumb. And if you're in the environment and just playing cards with the FBI guys, you can convince yourself that this is the thing to do. Right. Um, but you know, there, there is the egg noodles and ketchup factor, which does come in when he's realizing I got to spend my whole life in these rooms with these suckers and you know, Oh, you'll be protected, blah, blah, blah. You'll live great out here. Like what kind of life is that? And then to see the brother, it's like, I can't, I can't go through with this. And who knows if he would even be able to go through with it with Michael there, because he doesn't, he doesn't want to turn to Michael. He hates these guys. He hates the government. This was some sort of an intercession by Michael to make a, make a statement or make a threat or, or in some way just induce the behavior that he wants out of Frankie at this point, um, which I, you know, it's difficult to say because again, especially by this point in the movie, Michael, you know, we, we, we do learn a lot about him and the way that he operates and who he is on the inside and everything. But the reason that I think the, the moment is difficult to read is that we can't tell if it's meant as a threat or if it's meant as just a, uh, a memory jog or a, you know, you, you should know better that, you know, that, that, that you would think that it would be, you know, me that would come at you the way that you did. If you, you know, he's already sworn the affidavit. He's already on the train and, and it's running. And it's a matter of, uh, you know, whatever, whatever Michael's direct intent was, what he wanted was the, the end result, which was getting him to recant and say, Oh, I don't know. I, you know, these guys make me write all kinds of crazy things. Yeah. I think the brother's conception of what's going on is different than Michael's. And, uh, Pantangeli understands that difference. He understands the brother is here and is concerned and he would be shamed in front of him. But I think he also understands shame or no shame. Michael is kind of saying, I could also kill your brother if you go through with this. Yeah. And the brother yeah. probably doesn't know where that, but uh, yeah, I think that's, does. that's subtle, but it's there. Yeah. I love I love Frank Pantangelis the way when he realize when he changes his mind and realizes oh, he's not he's going so to turn. Perfect. He's so uh, good. Yeah, you know. There's a thing. I don't remember any of that. I don't know nothing about no Godfather. He, he's already established as as a sort of uh, you know a. a Bone vivant, you know, he's he's a guy who's you know, he lives life large. Like he's not just gonna clam up and say nothing. Like he's mm-hmm. he's if he's gonna if he's gonna switch sides, he's gonna do it big. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so it's great. Funny. And the and the reaction shots of these various senators and things are like looking right. at paper, like, but I have this affidavit here, and he's like, No, I really <laughs> right, have a right. I we just had a business <laughs> together. I don't even wait, know wait, what wait. this guys, is about. Guys, where are the folders? Bring the hey, folders oh, out. Oh, I know the... what you're thinking of. I was in the olive oil business. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. All the years ago. Uh, my wife pointed out, and my wife you know, was an attorney, and uh, and when we watched the OJ movies this year, there's the the fake one, the fiction one, and the documentary from ESPN, and they're both great. But uh, you know, clearly one of the huge turning points in that was the Chris Darden the, the glove thing. And she said the thing that makes it so ridiculous is that you learn one of the things you learn in law school. It doesn't matter what type of law you do if you're doing criminal or anything. You never put any witness on the stand unless you know exactly what they're going to exactly. say. Exactly right. It's 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 and it doesn't matter. It's you already know exactly what they're going to say. And the senators are all lawyers. You know they know it. And these this, it's not really a legal proceeding. It's a senate. You know, but that it, that's the shock that they have and the go get the papers and the turmoil is if is completely legit and if you ever watch real you know even today like on c-span it's everybody knows exactly what they're going to say you know and so somebody who actually says something completely opposite it really would just make the whole proceeding crumble <laughs> like the scaffolding the scaffolding just all comes down those senate hearings they're they're all about 
you know, the game of theater and stage, uh, stagecraft. And it really, it just comes down like a literal house of cards. But I, I, I wanted to bring back to, you know, Hey, I love seeing Roger Corman, but at the same time, while all these other guys are like freaked out and panicked and everything, Roger Corman's just staring straight ahead, just kind of sitting there. Just every everything's just tumbling down around. All the other guys are like, oh, oh I, I go. Oh, we need to look at these folders. Hey, where'd the folders go? All right, give me the folder that has the the thing in it. Oh, oh this is worth, outrageous. Uh, worth this also is- mentioning that. Um, so this was shot. I think it started in toward the end of seventy three. Um, th- that would be you know basically that that um, spring and summer of seventy three was Watergate. So I, I think that this is a, an image that is, you know, the Watergate hearings. I think this was very resonant, probably, with the, the feeling at the time. Let's talk about our last major block with Robert De Niro, which is Return to Sicily. Oh. <laughs> Guess what? He remembers. He remembered and after mad. they get off the train. Uh, wasn't, he wasn't worried about the words. What was, what was your name? <laughs> Yeah. They're met by an older man and woman who I assume are the people who put him in the bag and rode him out on the donkey. Oh, wow. Oh, I never thought about that. I never thought about it Maybe not, but wow. I just guessed. I mean, it was a husband and a wife who squirreled him out, right? That maybe, and maybe it's meant to be them, but I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know if it's the same actors or just meant to be the same characters or what, but, um, you know, but they're, it's an older pair and they meet him at the train station. There's people there and they, and they, they take him around and, and, and he's in Sicily and it's great. And then they go to, uh, Don, Don Ciccio's place which we remember from the beginning of the movie he's still sitting in the same chair but he's just just very old at this point and i I like that the again the movie makes you wonder what the details are like i am convinced that robert de niro right that Vito is there to exact his revenge on don ciccio but i do have a question of like is this a pretense that he's put everybody onto into to get him close to Don Ciccio. Yeah, the whole thing, we're going to come back to pay our respects and maybe we'll do a deal with you. We brought the olive oil. That's one of my favorite little things along with along with uh, Hyman Roth's various ticks. When he hands the him, can. when his, his assistant hands him the, the big jug of olive oil and the guy looks at it and he goes, yeah, yeah what, do you, what do you want me? Yeah. yeah. All right. Like, you can play that back of the old man looking at the olive oil for a second and going, uh, yeah. here. And gives it back to him. Yeah, it's olive oil. Um, but that's that's all to be like, yeah, I, I'm ingratiating myself to you. Come come closer. Uh-huh. I can't see you. Come I do like them. There's a shot of them like checking out the, the, the guards as they're walking up like they yep. know where yeah, the guards just, are. You know, yep. they, they got an escape plan. Tomasino yeah. doesn't come out too well. And that's why he ends up in a wheelchair in the other movies. That's a nice little prequel, mm. you know, connection. Oh, I didn't there. know that. Because uh-huh. he gets shot, he gets shot right. in the getaway, and right. then as they see him back off to America on the train, he's in the wheelchair, and then the Godfather Mun, when he goes to Tomasino, a guy meets him, yeah. Wow. See, I we're did. revealing all the secrets of the Godfather expanded universe. Wow. Hmm. Like, all the little bits of canon that, that otherwise you missed. There's so many characters, it's hard to keep track of. It, it's it, kind it, of like, it is. you know, like, it, it's it's not as if there is, uh, so many other movies do this in, in a in a sort of on-the-nose way. Even, even the, I think, the more, you know, more subtle, but still, uh more blatant than the things in this movie is like Indiana Jones getting the scar on his chin, right? With the whip, yeah. right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's why Harrison Ford slashed Indiana Jones' scar. Because like, they kind of put a pin in it. But Tomasino getting shot and carried to the car and then being in the wheelchair, they don't they don't dwell on that. It just happens to be there. And if you don't notice it, 
Right. Yeah. The 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 scar on Vito's neck. There was a deleted scene in uh, a version of the movie that Coppola has said originally the intercutting was like it went back and forth like 20 times. And now it goes back and forth. You know, I think there are like 12 segments of the movie now. Uh, but he said it was much more intercut. There was a bunch more stuff in there. It was closer to four hours. It was a mess. Um, but, you know, there there are those bits of, you know, uh, additional detail and everything uh, and, and bringing up this kind of, oh, so that links to this. And, oh, I didn't, never noticed that, that kind of thing. Um, one of my favorite things about the the series, The Sopranos, we shouldn't go on a Sopranos tangent, but, uh, you know, for, for me, the, the thing that I think made that show work so well right out of the gate is that it was about the first generations of these guys after these types of movies existed, being able to comment on them and constantly refer to them and misquote them and do bad impressions of characters from them and 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 look at and, and look, look at look at this from their own lens. Um, and uh, and it, it's you know, it's it's like them arguing about Star Wars minutia. Uh, it's it's incredibly dorky within the context of, you know, meatheads who kill each other uh, for a living. Um the, the, the other thing about this, uh, this going back to the homeland sequence, uh, that, uh, that I wanted to mention was uh, him closing these different loops. You know, whether you look at these flashbacks as something that is within Michael's consciousness or him having a version of all these different events that have been told to him, there is definitely got to be a chunk of this stuff, uh, that he was told about very specifically because I feel like, I feel like his dad telling him about the events of the return to the homeland and exacting justice and that kind of thing that Michael learned exactly the wrong lessons about it in terms of, you know, closing loops and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and Michael just going a bit overboard in closing loops that you don't necessarily even have to close, uh, that it's, it's not even a matter of honor. It's, it's a matter of, you know, him being reactionary or just, um, you know, feeling, feeling like he's, he's gonna, he's gonna show people who's boss. And the infrastructure Vito built up, the infrastructure that is there for Michael later when he has to be sent off to Italy, like that, that, that these people he has relationships and how they've helped him, like the, the whole Godfather cliche thing of you do me a favor, I do you a favor, seems like, oh, that's a way that I get leverage on you. No, it's a legitimate way that he builds relationships. Sometimes it's, you know, with leverage, but other times it is, we are in this together. Tomasino helps me out. Later I send my son to them that takes care of it. And like the people who help me out of the village, I'm going to, if those were the people later, I'm going to see them again. Like it's a, it's a network of relationships that he builds that support his empire more so than ruling through fear, which is ends up being Michael's thing. Someday. And that day may never come. <laughs> this film ends with, uh, a couple of, uh, intercut things right oh boy because we talked we talked a little bit about the funeral and about fredo and all of that and about michael and Kay having their falling out but one thing that we haven't really gotten to at the end here is not only do we have fredo who is going fishing son the son is called away fredo goes out on the lake with a guy but we also have our friend fantangeli who is uh, visited by Tom Hagen, who reminds him that in the Roman Empire, often hmm. what would happen mm-hmm. to the people who tried to uh, commit treason against the emperor was that they would kill themselves. They'd sit in a bath, 
Pentangeli remembers and cut their uh, wrists open and bleed out but and they would die sometimes they'd even have a big party beforehand but what would what that would mean is that the family of the of the dead person would be taken care of the family wouldn't be destroyed it would just be the sacrifice made by the leader of the family and we get that intercut which of course leads to Fredo being killed out on Lake Tahoe and Pentangeli being found by his FBI guards in the bathtub having killed himself in order to take care of the rest we got, of the family. We got family. poor Hyman Roth. He just wants to vote. <laughs> yeah, and, he, and he, he gets killed in the airport. This is a, a mirror of the, the first movie with the five families getting killed all at once. It's fewer people getting killed, but it's the orchestrated final murder sequence. This is your Indicut. Right, right. Hyman Roth, who can't be reached. Oh, well, maybe we can reach him. And he basically, it's like Jack Ruby style where he gets off a plane. Oh, totally he's Jack being Ruby. interviewed. Oh, I'm just a pension, you know, a, a pensioner. And a guy comes. <laughs> Someone got a gun into an airport and met him coming and, off the and plane. And literally a dude no walks security. up to him and just shoots him. <laughs> point blank and run and, 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 and doesn't make it out but first he la- he laughs he laughs a little bit and then he leans into it that expression of like haha that's funny yeah because he's a reporter mr roth mr roth yeah here's a bullet yeah and so that's all undercut so this is yeah this is the big uh explosion of violence at the end of this although again it's a little a little quieter compared to what happens in yeah and it's sadder because movie. we know this is not triumphant it is you know? sadder it the, is the first one is so up op- this first one is so big and so operatic and so necessary mm-hmm. and in this one it's you know excluding i guess hyman roth i mean well, but, you know, but even hyman roth like hyman roth is more a more sympathetic character than michael in this he's movie. got six months to live at most and michael doesn't yeah, care We're still gonna, i'm still gonna send a guy just to, just to shoot a him yeah. and probably die in the process which he does he does he does die yeah this one it feels more like you want to turn away a little bit more because all three of them are like ah, oh, jeez yep. uh, yeah like you don't really want the, all three you know it's it's, it's yeah. one thing to like take out mo green and also bring in the Sopranos back into this for a second. Um, this movie, even with the, the the deal that's offered to Pantangeli, like the you know, most of them are looking back at the Roman Empire. They both done reading about it. They know the deal. You do this; it's the honorable thing to do. Would take care of your family. Um, this still, even in the, the downfall of the Corleone family in this movie, and the downfall of Michael, and and the, the just how everything has fallen apart, and it's not like it used to be. Still, you come away believing that they will take care of Pantangeli's family. In the Sopranos era, they will say that, but your family is like, once you, Sopranos and in the Goodfellas thing, the whole thing is like, it, it is post this this era, and it's like, we'll pretend that we're going to take care of your family, but as soon as you're gone, forget it. They don't get another dime from us. Like, the the, the, the honor is completely out. Yeah, I, I really I really caught that, this, this viewing, that the amount of coded speaking is it's very straightforward. The, 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 the coded speaking while they're smoking the cigars, they're in the chain link area. It's like, there doesn't even have to be like a, uh, a huge amount of like, hmm, like leaning mm-hmm. into it. F- like Frankie just gets it. He knows that this is the thing to do. And he, on the strength, he just knows they'll, he'll be taken care of. It was business. And, and they really, and they really will. It is not a BS thing. Like it is in every occurrence of this in the Sopranos and most of them in Goodfellas that it's like every man for himself. And there is, you know, there is no honor among thieves. Right. Like the way that, uh, when, uh, when Henry was in, in the joint doing his time the right way, you know, even with and crewed up with a bunch of his guys, you know, and they're making the, the meals and everything. And he, but then when he gets home, he takes one look around the place where Karen and the kids are. And he's like, pack your stuff. We're moving. You yeah, know, yeah. like they're living in like a one bedroom, you know, house, you know, it's, and, it's, and they were more or less supporting her because he was still alive and he was still on the, in, in, in the inn with them. But it's, but in it's, no way was, was she being taken care of in a way. Right. That, and if that, he, if he betrayed them, it's not like they're going to take care of his family because he kills himself. That was an impossibility. And the Sopranos, you know, which I watched so many years ago that I don't remember the specific details, but so many times someone does anything against the family, 
everyone you know, your entire extended family. You're lucky, A, if they don't all get killed, or B, they're not getting another dime. Hey, I, I got a uh, I got a super dumb guy question, and I'm just probably spacing this. Uh, why did he have to die? Is it, so he wouldn't testify further, or was it purely an honor thing? Oh no, it's because because Michael. Why do you have, do you have to wipe out everybody? No, just my enemies. He had to die because Michael wanted him to die. Because he betrayed him. Yeah, he, you can. He considered betraying him. Just to be clear, though, the reason for that, just because I think it changes the movie, it wasn't that. I mean, he was already in. He's he's been convicted. Yeah, we assume, he, he would have just point. been in jail. Like no, that's right. it. He was he was off the board. It was an honor thing. Yeah. yeah my, well, it was that Michael could not allow it to stand. That you even considered betraying me, even though you eventually didn't, because I brought your brother in. That you right. need to die. That's yeah. It. Even 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 if it was because he got fooled and got played like a fool, it's his fault for being played played like a fool. Yep. I mean, he he killed Fredo for crying yeah. out loud. Like his right. system is like you, it, you know, you betray me. Even if there is a reason, even if you had good intentions, even if you're my dim-witted brother, you got to go. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the sickness that infects him that, you know, it puts him in that chair at the end of the movie. There's a deep, dark, vindictive streak to Michael. Yes. And, yes. and that, that isn't there at all in Vita. Well, he compensates, he, he compensates for anything where he's... So he compensates for a lot of things with his coolness, his distance his measured attitude toward things. And, and I think failing at having the worldview that Vito had, this is how he reacts to things. Uh, if just go back, like with Vito, even with just the silly little thing with the landlord and the dog, he goes the first time and he, he doesn't say, Hey, you know who I am. He doesn't threaten him. He just says, Hey, I'm a guy. I'm a friend of this lady. I want to give you more money. So you get more money, you'll get something, and all you do is leave her there, and she gets to keep her dog. But when the guy comes back, and he meets him in the office, and he's groveling, there's not a single bit of Vito's reaction to it. Now, he accepts it. He's not like he's not trying to make the guy feel feel comfortable, per se, but he's not vindictive. He's not like, there's nothing in him that's... And he's more amused, like he's laughing yeah. with his friend, of like, right, but right, not right, laughing right. at the guy, just laughing like that it's a funny situation. The same reason we're laughing at. He's not like, ha-ha, finally I, I have achieved triumph over the evil right. landlord, and... Not, but like think of, think about um think about Michael in Italy when he has the meeting has like the parlay with Apollonia's father and you could see that he's kind of just jumping through you know formal hoops but the very you know gracious kind of you know the way that he says like you know the way he's introducing the idea that basically he wants to marry Apollonia he does it he you can see him and he's you know he's kind of by rote walking through what will be the the civil way to do this but at least he, he was still doing that at that point he understood that there were hoops to jump through to make this look good well, that is uh, that gets us to the end, which we already kind of talked about, which is we get the flashback that so, really the the end of the Robert De Niro story is the story that takes us right up to the beginning of the first Godfather movie. It's you know it's oh before that before Michael even goes off to war to you know to, to like I said I I I love despite that you know uh, I forget who it was was saying that this this scene seems clunky and the people in it are just kind Hello. of like re- reprising yeah it was Marlon reprising their roles from the first movie in a clunky way and look at all these people. And, and and Don Corleone is not there because they couldn't get Marlon Brando and stuff like that. But like, it works so much for me because they, you're on such a down after seeing Fredo get shot and all those people get murdered and Michael in the chair by himself, contrast to his father's end, which was so different. Um, and then they bring it back one more time. And like I said, you know, the, the, the revealing that this was Michael all along, but also like the, the bittersweetness of seeing, like, d- despite the dysfunction, despite... Sonny trying to set up his sister, like, basically with this arranged marriage with this guy who ends up being a jerk anyway. And it's kind of like, Sonny, it's your own stupid fault. You hate her husband. You you introduced her to her husband. You're, you know, mm-hmm. everybody's flaws are on full display, but they are 
through the magic of makeup and technology. This is how they were young and vibrant. And look at Michael's collar and look at his idealism. But look at he was he was that same person you will see later under the covers, you know, like. I, it, it totally works. For me. I, I would I like a chance to respond. To uh, respond. Cause I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's conceptually a bad idea. This scene, I think it's not well implemented. I think it shows that it was hastily done. I think James Conn's like Shucky Jivey slap everybody around. That does not have the same subtlety as the scenes with like, but, with but that's De Niro. what Sonny was like. That's what Sonny liked for the whole first movie. He doesn't have any subtlety. He's a big, yeah, buffoon. but it's a real stat. It's a weirdly static shot. And it's, it just feels, it feels a little bit like, I don't know. It feels like a re- reunion episode. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the staging, the staging, could be better it feels like they didn't have a lot of room in the set but i do kind it's of really like the, the, yeah. the sitcom kind of thing where it's just everyone sitting at the table I don't, I don't i don't mind that i didn't get to mention that before but like uh watching old movies which i will categorize this one as, as an oldish movie it's not remarkable for this movie because this is the way things were were shot and framed in those days basically the style of the times as they say but the the fact that this is like one camera showing the whole table the whole time with a couple of uh, intercuts with close-ups and stuff, but a lot of it is just pulled back and they just let the scene play out. Kind of like you put a camera in front of a stage, a theater stage, and just let it play out. There's that scene with where they're stealing the rug where the policeman comes to the door and Clemenza is back against the wall with the Love gun that. pointed to where the guy's going to come through. In a modern movie, the modern sensibility is never to frame that by pulling back and getting the entire wall, the door in the middle of the wall, and the guy silhouetted there, Clemenza, with the gun pointed sideways at the thing to get that all in the shot and that be the entire shot for the entire time. It works so well. And today would always be a close up from like chest level looking up under the guy's chin, seeing the sweat on his brow, glistening off the gun. Or a series of like nine, like four, nine cuts edits. and extreme yeah, close-ups. Exactly. Yeah, right, yeah. and like the guy outside the door, let's see the view from the outside, let's see it from the inside, let's see, let's see him sweating by the gun, let's see the tip of the gun, let's see the guy looking over there, and this one they're just like camera back and just let this thing play out and i think this this has that essence especially michael sipping his drink at the end with his pinky up all alone at the table with the camera that has not moved for the entire scene um it's not as artful as the other things but it, i mean oh i disagree it, it, it feels well I'm, I'm saying like it's not as like as as willfully like avant-garde artful it is more like literally yeah, like, they, a, like they a didn't plan scene. it that way like that that it is uh it, and it plays out like a theater scene because what kind of staging can you have? You put the table there, you put everyone in front of the table, they all bounce off each other and all the, the again, the clumsy stage mechanics of Sonny rough handling people, but actually not rough handling them. And you, you just see it all there. There's no editing to hide the fact that his shaking of his brother is not really that severe of a shaking and all that other stuff. I'll say that, I'll say that James Caan was, was exactly consistent with how he was with uh, physical work in the first movie in, in not selling it terribly well. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty not, sloppy. it's not his strength, which is kind of bad for a character who's always supposed to be, you know, uh, punching people. Um, the the thing about this scene, I I I, th- I mentioned part of this uh, when we when we first talked about it seven hours ago. Um, the the original plan was that they were going to have Marlon Brando and. I'm curious to know what the original scripting for this scene was supposed to be, because I, you know, I, I, I would say that I, I fall more on the Syracuse side of things on, on this scene, but I, I completely identify with, uh, I, I think part of what Merlin was, was trying to say, which is that it, it feels rough around the edges. It feels hastily thrown together. It doesn't feel as, uh, incredibly precise as the entire rest of the movie that precedes it, which is, which is why I, you know, I, 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 I feel it, it like it's like a, a little scene. bit of an ill fit. It feels fit. like a cut scene in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, it, 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 it's an ill fit alongside all of the stuff that, that preceded it. 
you know, the, 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 the whole first movie was Coppola making a movie that he was being actively countermanded at every step and he was getting put into it progressively more and more of a tiny box. And then it was a massive success. And then they let him do whatever he wanted to for this one. And he had to deal with Khan going, yeah, I'm going to get paid a ton of money and I'm going to show up and say lines and leave and contending with all of the schedules of the people that they suddenly had to put together for this movie that was a follow-up to the surprise mega massive hit that the first movie was and they set literally everything up expecting that they're going to do a version of the scene which i assume that the majority of the dialogue is the exact same as what they expected to do the day before when they were pretty sure that they had marlon brando uh but then on the day when I, you know, I would presume he was supposed to be brought into the scene. Uh, it was probably going to be staged the exact same way, but there was, there was probably some re-dialoguing that had to happen to fill in bits of character stuff that were going to come from Don Corleone coming back into the room. And that just kind of got shoved into people's mouths and it was, it was like backloaded expository dialogue. And that's why it feels kind of perfunctory and kind of all right now we're checking this off the list and we're checking this off the list and now we're hanging this lantern on this and i'm going to call the twins luke and leia uh, as i die tom's thing where he says to michael that your father has plans for you like that's probably yeah. was courtly out you know Don, Vito was going to say michael i have plans for you, you know? yeah that's what i would think yeah yeah and i think Michael's performance in that scene is better than almost everybody else's. Like, I do feel like oh, the no, no. Minor he's, he's, he's in a way better movie than everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Cause like, he's doing that thing where like, there's so much about, I mean, and this has been talked about, there's a million things I'm not mentioning that everybody knows about the Godfather movies. But like, you know, if you go and watch, I think I, I dropped it into Skype. If you could put it in show notes, that documentary on the making of, or the, um, basically the restoration process that, that brought this movie back from the dead and how in that one scene that, that John Serkis and I like to talk about in the Italian restaurant in number one, you can see Pacino's like, there's so many, there's so many levels to Pacino's performance because there's the basic stoniness, but there's also like just the tiniest little like tick, like a little bit, like his, his face just like, just like moving just a little bit. And you know, that's, yeah, God, how do you, how do you, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, in that scene, he is in a different movie. He's he's fidgeting in his seat. He's got the crazy collar, like you mentioned. I'm not I'm not down on this scene. It's just like after after making the Godfather two, <laughs> I just wouldn't have ended it with that. I would I would have left that off. Uh, I I think the scene is essential. I, I I can get on board with it being executed better. But if it just ended with him in the chair, that's not the ending. Like I need it to go back to this. I need it to because I think the audience needs it to go back to that to 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 give you the final contrast. Like to I, tie back I, in the works. sense the sense of the past and how it ties together. Right. And, and yeah, also yeah. to show you that this was Michael all along. Maybe you didn't. You know that that I think it is a. It's kind of like the movie showing its work right and and this is one of the few scenes that i think does have some because michael's sitting in the chair and he's thinking and what is he thinking about and maybe he's not thinking about this exact thing but he would have a memory of this because he was an adult at this time because things have fallen so far apart and maybe he's twisting the knife to say remember what it used to be like and it wasn't all roses right but they were together they were all eating together they were fighting over the things they fight with they're all their personality traits were there they're, the downfall is written on the forehead of every single person in the scene to a degree where it's a little bit on the nose. So like, oh, fi- your father's got plans with you and I'm going to arrange you with this thing. And Sonny is a blowhard. And like, you know, it's uh, but I I need this to be there when they do that fade every time. I'm like, oh, yeah, it doesn't end in the chair. And I'm I'm happy for it because I feel like it it seals this movie in a package that is 
it's not an entire downward slope. It's a downward slope that wraps back around on itself. And that somehow makes me feel better than just leaving him in that chair with the leaves blown by. I, I agree with you on that. And for me, you know, I, I think I'm allowed to you know make some Star Wars references and I'm not doing it because today's May the 4th because uh, it's not a holiday to me. It's just a day. Uh, but because, uh, you know, we, we talked about sequels and prequels and, and the way that this really earns all of the prequel stuff is is that it is, you know, this this guy was going to be Darth Corleone all along. And if it's the movie itself was not made in a time when you could jump onto iTunes or go down to your local record shop and get a used copy of the Blu-ray and go back and immediately watch the first one. But it does have that effect. You know, the, the, the reason that this movie was so beloved and so besotted with Oscar nominations and everything and has become so legendary is one of the, if not the greatest sequel of all time, is that it really adds another layer to the movie that preceded it. It adds additional text and subtext to all of that stuff. And the, the reason that you can put on The Godfather and just watch it and, you know, put on Godfather 2 and just watch it is that is that it is such a thoroughly detailed tapestry all around. And, you know, th- this scene, shaggy though it may be, I, you know, I, I I also would not leave it off. For me, it is a, it is an essential part of earning all of that stuff that this second movie dug it's into. It's that last moment of when you see James Caan, right? It is the connection that takes you back to how you felt in the first movie. Like, it's the world as we saw it. So it is the connection, right? We've been watching what happened before that movie and what happened after that movie. And this is sort of the moment. It's a special scene shot for this film, but it is the moment where you're touching the that first movie. We've come into contact with it from both sides. It, it's not, you know, it's not going to have Robert De Niro in it, right? It's going to have Marlon Brando if he were there. And he, so he's implied off screen. But, but it, and you see James Conn and you have that moment of like, oh my God, this is, I've made that connection to the to that other movie. So it's very important to have it there, even though I agree. It's kind of a weird, I, I feel like almost dreamlike scene where it's like, what am I seeing here? Am I watching the wrong, wrong movie now? Um, John, though, as a point of order, the the way that the movie ends is we see Michael in the boathouse and then we do a slow dissolve to this scene and then we do a slow dissolve to Michael sitting in the chair with the leaves in the background and then we go to the credits. So that is the last thing we see is him in the chair. Yeah, it does go back to the chair. Well, you also you also get him leaving on the train in Italy, too, because you yes. get one more loop back all the way back with him to him. That's as a kid. right. Yeah, There's it, those it, double it dissolves. Right in on his face double dissolves. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. end with but like the sun, you, know, you the see father, him in the chair the sun. and and zoom in. You know, mm. for a few seconds, then they're out. It's yeah. not as if you go back to him in the chair for five yeah. minutes. I, I think it's a tendency to the, or it, it's it's a testament to the the kind of collective bleed together of this whole movie that it's you know a, a lot of movies you're like oh yeah that was the last shot of that movie no. or oh that's how that movie ends and we, we even even freshly watching it within the last week I find myself trying to convince myself no wait. No, that's, that's not, not the last how shot. Happened. They do three time periods and within like a second and a yeah. half. Yeah, it <laughs> all know, separated by together. twenty years. Yeah. We're at the end. Anything more that people ha- shockingly have not gotten out that they'd like to get out? We will, we'd have to go for about another 40 minutes to meet the running time of the movie. So we're still going to come up a little short. We are doing so much better than I expected. I, I could, if I had done a Goodfellas style where I did a scene at a time, no problem. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, have, uh, I, have quick, I have quick notes um, regarding accolades, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong. <laughs> oh, good. Um, uh, Godfather 2, I have three things. Godfather 2 won Best Picture and Best Director. Pretty cool. Uh, I think, perhaps most dramatically, three of the actors in this movie were nominated for Best Supporting Actor. 
um, De Niro, Michael V. Gazzo, who, and uh, Lee Strasberg, all three. Lee Strasberg, his first like actual real movie, despite training everybody. How amazing is that? Three, three Best Supporting Actor nominations. And third, I would just like to mention, shout out to the 32nd uh, Golden Globe Awards, Most Promising Newcomer Male. Lee Strasberg. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing the Golden Globes have done well. And Pacino was nominated for Best Lead Actor. Yeah. Uh, and and he was he was real sore about <laughs> lost being nominated Carney. for Supporting in the, in the first movie. Yeah. Where Brando was nominated for Lead. He was nominated for Supporting. He was really sore about it. He that. lost to Ed Norton in A Cat. Yeah. yeah. It's not, not so good. Actually, the, the funny thing about uh, Michael Vigazzo, so that's, uh, that's uh, Pantangeli, but... Um, he that was supposed to be um clemenza right yeah that, he's he's discount right. store clemenza because you couldn't get clemenza yeah because clemenza so didn't want to do it because he wanted to write brand. his own dialogue or something and then in the end that part basically gets uh gets a best supporting actor nomination so career career mistake i'm just saying well and coppola coppola even brings brings up the the deal with with trying to get castellano to to like you know close his deal uh on the godfather 2 commentary track where he says that yeah you know we wanted him in the movie and he, he basically says yeah so here's what we did we uh the, you know this guy is basically supposed to be clemenza and you know i i really wish that we could have had him in the movie but uh sad. Oh, well. too bad but also like um yeah what's surprising to me like i'm sure this ex- excludes brando and maybe a couple other top tier characters but as salaried actors went uh clemenza was the highest paid actor in godfather one huh <laughs> that's crazy yeah. well I, it's crazy that that movie even got made in the first place and and you you put a link to the uh, to the restoration documentary but there's a there's an archival you know behind the scenes thing that was on the dvd collection of all three movies back in 2001 that's like on the you know on the archived extras part of the blu-rays and i would assume is in the itunes extras um but it's it it, it does a it does a you know you, you've even got robert evans in there talking yep. about how well i was just <laughs> trying to get this movie made and i was you know taking a bath in a bathtub full of applesauce and you know being crazy robert they evans tell the story about how uh evans called coppola and said um, I, I take a half I hour. A, yeah, I need, I need <laughs> a two hour. Minutes. I need a two hour cut, and so he comes down with a two hour cut, and he says, "This re- this is like a trailer. We're going to cut it down here." And Coppola realized, "Oh, this was a game. <laughs> oh. uh, they were going to not <laughs> no let matter, me. No matter what I answer, yeah. you will take this to L.A. and edit it yourself." Yeah, yeah he he knew that. I, I yeah, I'll throw in that that story, uh, presumably true about James Caan getting paid the same as he got paid in the first film. I imagine he didn't get paid that much in, for the first film, and it was sort of like, all right. But the be- the the best part of it is also part of his deal he's not credited like all the other actors he's actually credited with a thank you there is a special yeah. appreciation Very special th- special appreciation for, <laughs> for james con <laughs> good he's got a good he, agent he, he got good paid agent. like daisy ridley numbers good yeah. agent man good good job <laughs> i mean this is another thing that goes without saying we talked about it a lot in, in the godfather one but the way they maintained the look uh the the the, the super inky blacks the the staging of everything the the dark the contrast of darkness and light is a direct continuation of the first movie and if anything executed even more skillfully but by this point we just take it for granted but just go through this movie and look at some of the frames and they are they're just spectacular 
you can chew the film grain in this movie like a meal. Oh yeah, like, it's like oh. the Godfather one. I mean, so even I, I'm watching the Coppola restoration, but yeah, like, you get to see I, every like, single grain is, in the restoration in HD. It's so, like especially the outdoor scenes where, like, I put a clip in the in the thing of like they're they're on the roof in in Cuba and the, the ocean is in the background and it's like. It's like it's made of felt. It's like yep. it's so incredible. Different film stocks have different grains con- consistencies, even within eras. Like the things, the things that that we're shooting at around the same time as Godfather Part Two might not look as grainy as noisy, just because this is a particular thirty-five millimeter stock that that Gordon Willis wanted to use. I like the distinct feels of the settings here too. I mean, the way it's shot, the the color palette does change without the film grade. Uh, when you're in Cuba, when you're in Washington D.C., when you're in Lake Tahoe, like they all feel distinct. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I really like that about it, that, that there's a sense of place in all of these scenes, uh, just down to the look of them. It's, that's uh, quite pleasing. I like how DC's look is just sort of boring. Yeah. Right? It's almost dead. like desaturated. But it, like, it looks like it's shot through TV cameras because that's the mm-hmm. thing they do. The angle, the, the long lens, the, the, the so much the, less the only, the only The limited number of angles that you have on anybody that just repeatedly get shown like a TV news program. It's just beige. All right. I'm going to wrap it up here. I feel like we've done this movie justice. You know what? I got to tell you, Jason Snell, bright and tight. Yeah. I, I was expecting a minimum of four and a half yeah. hours. No, this we got is it done, amazing. We got it done less than three. Look at us. We got it done three. I think we're all heroes One here. done. All right. I'd like to thank my guests for uh, for sticking through this epic, complete epic, no, edition of The Incomparable. John Syracuse, thank you. Jason, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Longer, too. Merlin Mann, thank you. Thank you. Moises Chuyan, thank you. I want all of you to enjoy your cake, so enjoy. And uh, John Gruber, this is the business that we've chosen. I'm smart. (laughs) (laughs) I'm smart. smart. Not like (laughs) like people say. Oh, thanks to everybody out there for listening. We will see you next time. I'm just kind of t- I know I've said this on a podcast before too, but I'm not entirely convinced that if if Karen had gone to get the coats or the dresses, that anything was going to happen to her. That's why you'd be dead. I'm not. <laughs> I, I I feel that's what makes that scene so masterful. Is it? I, I feel like it's good. yeah, is it because it's the well, paranoia. The paranoia thing, is yeah. the Am I being paranoid thing. or is this well-founded paranoia? Yeah. And I almost and I, I think it's very it's perfectly deliberate. But I, the thing that makes me I've thought about this a lot. But the thing that makes me convinced <laughs> that nothing was actually going to happen to her is that there were a couple of spooky guys in silhouette doing work where she was supposed to go. And if it was if if she was going to get like garroted or something, there wouldn't have been anybody she could see. Huh? That's just my yeah. Anyway, you never wrong know. movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. But though. you know they 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 feel like they're they're interconnected tapestries even outside of the yeah. Godfather franchise, I, I, as it were. I do feel like sometimes the Goodfellas is very specifically like here's all the work that was going on underneath while you were watching <laughs> the Godfather. Yeah. Right, this is the really dirty stuff down here at the bottom. But the the best the best thing about any hit scene, the best thing about any hit scene is how they get the target to you know like right. Joe Pesci going to his get made. It's, oh it, God. Every, Every one of them, every hit scene, though, the best part is, you know, Mo Green getting a massage. Uh-huh. It's what's happening before. I'm looking at the Oscar nominees for that year, and the other the other best supporting actors, in addition to the three from The Godfather Part Two, was Jeff Bridges from Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, 
And amazingly, Fred Astaire for the towering inferno. Oh, <laughs> contemporaries. Wow. In the best actor, Pacino lost out to Art Carney for a movie I've never even heard of called Harry and Tonto. Harry and Tonto, I'm telling you. It's, Harry it's, and Tonto. It's, it's, it's Ed Norton and a cat. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then Albert Finney was nominated, Dustin Hoffman for Lenny. And yeah. Jack Nicholson for Chinatown. For Chinatown. And Chinatown. he did Chinatown, <laughs> Godfather 2, neither one. Chinatown and Godfather 2, part of the big comeback of Paramount, which, it, right. you know, at the time of the first movie, the guy, the, the big conglomerate Gulf Western that had bought Paramount was just ready to strip mine the place and get rid of it. And, uh, and Robert Evans is like, well, we have this book that we have the rights to, and it's, it's the most successful book out there other than, have uh, I told you love the story? story? Have I told you about love story? Uh, have I told you about love story? I had well, her. Art, I you had bet her your ass Art I Carney have. and a you cat instead. One. Art Carney and his cat. This is making me so angry. I get so angry at the Academy yeah, but Awards you, now. You, you guys dance with the, wolves. No, no. It's yeah, the, the greatest show on earth. earth. The greatest show on earth. was like, we're, we, we're, we, <laughs> no. we love The Godfather so much, we're going to do exactly the <laughs> same guys, thing and lose the Oscar inexplicably. To, well, I, it's not as fair. They lost the Oscar to Dance with the Wolves, which is not a bad movie. The best Oscar for cinematography went to The Towering Inferno. The Towering Inferno. <laughs> yeah. Special The Towering Inferno. Over Chinatown and... And The Godfather Part Two wasn't even nominated. <laughs> oh my god! It was rough. I was just so I've been I've been watching this on the iPad while we've been talking, and the scene with Mama, uh, who I think never actually officially got a name. Th- that scene with Night Shift on is rough. <laughs> it is stop. super. Don't do it to your life. Don't do it, Marilyn. Don't do it. Uh. All right. Yeah. Oh anytime God. you get mad about the Academy Awards, John, just remember that Roger Deakins has never won for cinematography. <sighs> yeah. That, that's, I mean, like, it's, it, you know, a lot of these on. things, like, even like Jack Nicholson for Chinatown and stuff, like, it, the Oscars thing is like, oh, unrecognized genius, and you get the apology Oscar later. I mean, like, Scorsese is a, a great example. You don't get the Oscar for your best work, you get for the Oscar after your best work is recognized. Yeah. And I don't know why that's not happening with Deakins. <laughs> like, why did that not, why, how, what the system broke down there? <laughs> what did he lose to for it's, it's uh no country for old men that's the one where that wouldn't even have been like a makeup that was that's a beautiful movie i don't know what he lost to no country for old men 2007 uh I, moises i knew you were the one who's going to answer while you're looking it up can i just say how what a great <laughs> he, year from, he lost to robert elswit for there will be blood oh well that, uh, that, yeah uh, that's pretty good oh, yeah that was a good movie all right uh also up in that same year for best director was francois Truffaut for Day for Night, which is a remarkably well-directed movie. So what a year for movies. That yeah, was. Day for Jimmy. Night is phenomenal. Yeah, but look at the cinematography, you guys. <laughs> you got the Inferno, you got Chinatown, you got Earthquake. Yeah, earthquake. <laughs> earthquake. Sure. Murder on the Orient Express. Well, just, yeah. Give it up for Jeffrey Unsworth, am I right? If you're just tuning yeah, in, brother. it's the 70s Wikipedia page Oscar cast. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. They had a category for best on-screen mustache? Hold on. People were mad. People were super mad when that came out on Blu-ray. I, like everybody else, like every other idiot, I bought uh, the two Godfather movies and, and the Restoration box set, and people were super mad about the noise. People are yeah. stupid. I, I, yeah, I, people I, did are you dumb. see the demonstration online of like this uh, digital camera aficionado? showing you know he, he did this thing where it's <laughs> so, like i'm going to show you a bunch of things that were shot one of them was on film and one of them was on digital made to look like film and you won't be able to tell the difference and just threw that in people's faces and like to use it as an aesthetic like oh the film grain was a real thing then but you can get the same look now and like this movie i think argues for 
artistically using digital tools to not to recreate the old thing in a skeuomorphic kind of way, but just to have that in your bag. Kind of like, you know, when people started going crazy with film, with color grading, like in traffic and everything back in the mm-hmm. day. And now, you Every know, movie. The, like, it, yeah, <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah. Everything's like, blue and to, gold. Yeah. To, to, uh, to not bring back, but to have that as a tool in your toolbox, uh, in your, in your cinematographer's toolbox to decide the look of the movie, to have noise, essentially be part of the toolbox and today it almost seems like we only use it to make old people feel comfortable but i think this movie shows <laughs> that it can it can provide an aesthetic that is beautiful yeah. on its own with no reference to the past yeah. like you don't need to know that this was film in, in in the in the world of HD restorations, I am so glad that the trend of uh, of scrubbing out as much green from the picture as possible the went the way of the yeah. dodo. I mean, it, it, th- there's a version of Sunset Boulevard on DVD that is absolutely atrocious to look at. Also, a version of Spartacus uh, that that got put out. The first version of Spartacus on Blu-ray looks. I mean, it it looks like moving wax figures. Yeah, it looks. Terrible. Um, the great um, no, restorers now horrible. know that even if they have a, a denoised portion of the movie, they they actually will t- will like. Clean the film grain from another it, part of the movie it, yeah. and renoise it so it's the not just grain but the grain from the movie mm-hmm. so that it's all of a kind and that's the way to do it yeah marlon no i'm good no all right well well uh, you know all i was gonna mention was that like uh yeah you clumboed me there i'm sorry just one more thing i just Jason, no i mean he means like you want to keep the dog in your apartment <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time of confusion uh, peak tv yeah. um no this is a year when two really amazing directors had arguably two of their best films i'm just just i'm browsing through the awards page on wikipedia which is never wrong so this is also like technically the same cycle for godfather 2 and the conversation both up for best picture this is also the same year of blazing saddles and young frankenstein 1974 is a tremendously underrated year of movies. A lot of people like to go, oh, yeah, there were like four or five really great movies in the 70s. 74 in particular is there. There are these that everybody knows really well. And then, you know, I could do what's uh, what's taking a Pelham 123. That's 1974. Uh, When was I born? It's all coming (gasps) together. Oh, no. Well, and Earthquake. What year was Earthquake? <laughs> the Towering Inferno. Oh, oh God. What about Airport, Towering Inferno? What about, you guys. What year was Airport 75? Strangely enough, 74. <laughs> oh, I'm <on>. not kidding. <laughs> I, no I way. What? I don't, I don't understand how the conversation in this movie could come out in the same year. I, I, yeah. I, uh, it I feel that, I feel that way about the Mel Brooks uh, movies, where like, those I are guess. two such accomplished, yeah. like canonical and completely different, like like just mastery of modern comedy in the same year. Unbelievable. Uh, same, same year as Sugarland Express, Lenny. Wow. Um, That's good. Death Wish. Yeah. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Uh, Airport 75, I'm telling you. Parallax mm. View. Parallax View. Oh, that's a good one. Phantom of the Paradise. Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, come on. Phoenix. 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 